Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Our reading tonight is Acts 2, 42 through 47. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we do pray that it would please you to come to us and care for our hearing, our believing, our obeying. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be a good plowman and that he would indeed break up the fallow ground of our heart, making that soil good so that the seed of your word would be implanted and take root and bring forth a harvest of righteousness, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Lord, we pray that you would do this, that you would have that which is your due. And Lord, we pray that our children tonight would understand, especially them, O Lord, grant that they would understand your word and grab hold of it with the instrument of faith, and not let it go. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Beloved, coming into the church of our Lord Jesus Christ is very much like coming into Noah's Ark. And I'm not referring in any way to something in Wisconsin Dells or something in northern Kentucky. Of course, neither am I saying that walking through a church door with your body is like entering Noah's Ark. I'm actually saying something more serious and much, much more substantial. I'm saying that entering into the church's life is like entering Noah's Ark. To purposely become a baptized, communicant member of Christ's body because of your faith in Christ for salvation, that is like entering the Ark. That is pressing your life into the salvation God provides, a salvation from all the judgment God is bringing upon the earth because man's sin. Now let's remember what Noah's Ark was. It was the place where God gathered a people whom he favored. In Genesis 6, we read that God decided he would destroy all the people of the earth because of their wickedness. But then Genesis 6, 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then a few verses later, Genesis 7, 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. 
What was the Lord doing? He was gathering a man of faith and his household into the ark to save them from the flood of his wrath. Inside the ark, Noah and his wife, Noah's sons and their wives, all safely passed through the waters of judgment. Instead of drowning under God's wrath and being cast into hell, they were brought safely to a kind of new creation. Now, it was by faith Noah was saved. But by entering into the ark, he surrounded himself with a visible sign that showed he had salvation in the unseen promise of God. What promise? That God would graciously deliver Noah from the condemnation that was coming upon the whole world in a flood. Listen to how Hebrews 11 describes this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now something just like that happens when we enter the church. Our salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone. But when we become members of Christ's body, we surround ourselves with visible signs that show we are seeking salvation in the unseen promise of God. What promise? That God graciously delivers us from the condemnation he is bringing on this crooked generation. And he will safely bring us fully into the new creation that the resurrection of Christ has opened to us. It is no wonder, then, that Peter, in his first letter, says that Christian baptism corresponds to what God did with Noah. In 1 Peter 3, he says, Just as God brought Noah and his family safely through the waters of judgment, God does the same with us, Peter says, by baptizing us and adding us to the church. 1 Peter 3, 20 through 22. Christ gathers us into the ark of his body, and we begin to live in the church, the new creation of the risen Christ. And now, all the things outside the ark. What's outside the ark? Anything you want out there? Now all the things outside the ark are seen with remarkable clarity for what they really are. They are the condemned things of this present evil age. They are the corrupt things of a world opposed to God. They are the crooked things of a crooked generation. And of course, we don't mean the sunsets outside the ark or the bread but we mean the things that men want and the systems that men employ in this present evil age to get them. Now, with this all in mind, we are better able to understand the purpose of the six verses at the end of Acts 2. What we have in these verses is a look through the window in the ark. And what do we see when we look 
in on the people who, by the spirit of the risen Christ, cannot return to embrace the things of a world condemned. We see a people devoted to the things of the world to come. That's what we see. They don't want to get off the ark and have that thing that is under the condemnation of the living God. They want the things of the world to come, and so they are devoted to them. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now focus with me for a moment on that expression, they devoted themselves. This is a word of some intensity. And if you aren't persuaded, I'm going to try a little bit to persuade you. You are devoted to something. You cannot not be devoted to something. This word, devoted, means there's nothing ranked higher. There's nothing holding and keeping their attention other than the four habits listed here. Even if they have to spackle some grout between some rocks on their outer house, they go and spackle it. They're not devoted to spackle. Now, they might YouTube it to make sure they mix the spackle correctly so that it has longevity. Did they have YouTube back then? But they're not devoted to these necessary peripheral things. They're devoted to these things, the things of the new creation. And the reason they're devoted to them because they see how absurd it would be to be devoted to the things outside the ark in a world that they know now is condemned and under the wrath of God. So the Greek word used here for devoted, it's often used to describe a soldier who remains focused on his duties as a soldier. He's not often running away and and doing something else. Where's Lieutenant Dan? Well, I, I think he's, uh, he's been at a pickup game of pickleball for 10 days. Well, he, he's no longer lieutenant. This word is also used in the Greek to describe a dock worker who's always keeping a boat ready for a quick departure. If he's not there keeping the boat ready, he's not devoted, and the boat isn't devoted. To be devoted to something means you are not wandering away, always latching on to some new and different important thing. If you are devoted, your life has become settled upon a steady direction. And in this case, the direction is the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God's salvation, the kingdom of grace and glory. Now, let's understand something. These early Christians, they did not sit down and say together, hey, let's try really, really hard in our Christianity. Let's try harder. 
So when somebody comes someday and writes something about us in that future, they will see our single-mindedness and say that we were devoted to the things of Christ's kingdom. That's not how this description got here. They didn't plan it that way. They devoted themselves because they suddenly understood through Peter's preaching, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, through the judgment waters of baptism, through the announcement that Jesus Christ had been raised, they suddenly understood that the world outside the ark, the world under judgment, deserved no devotion. This is how it is explained in 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. First John 2, 15, 16, and 17. How can the Christian devote himself to wealth-making and power-climbing and pleasure-seeking and self-indulging? How can the Christian be devoted to these when we now see how these very things will bring the wrath of God upon the world? How can we be devoted to these things when it's these very things that have cast men into hell because of their devotion to them? How could we want to be devoted to that which destroys souls and that which for Christ came to liberate us from their bondage? It's these very things that drove lawless men to crucify the Lord. So the spirit of the risen Christ has given eternal clarity to the church. And it's why they're devoted to these things. We see now that Jesus did not rise from the dead so we could keep this world and gain this world, but so we could actually let go of its dead weight and devote ourselves to the things that will not be taken away from us. So before we go a step further, I say to all who are listening, What are you devoted to? Are you devoted to the things of the age to come? Or are you devoted to the things of this present evil age, which is under a mountain's height of water, the wrath waters of the living God? Beloved, the reason people in the church of Jesus Christ often find the Christian life and the church such a burden is because they are trying to do what Jesus said no man can do. They're trying to have two loves. They're trying to love a world condemned and love the sounds of the world of salvation. Jesus said you cannot love both of them. You will actually hate one and love the other. If you are a person who finds the church an annoyance, an inconvenience, you find the prayers of the people and the sacraments 
and the teaching of doctrine. And you find all of that, something that's on the edge of your life and you want to do everything you can to keep it there, but not get it so far that people start to be concerned about you, but you like it out there. If that's you, let me tell you tonight, it's because you love a condemned world. That's why that is the case. You love the things that are bringing men into hell. And you haven't learned yet to guard them as Christ regards them, as antithetical to his kingdom, the very things of the devil that he has come to deliver you from. Now let me say a word about the apostles' teaching, for they were devoted to it. The apostles' teaching, to which they were devoted, is about divine authority. Divine authority ruling within the society of the saved, the church. The apostles were teaching because not even a Christian filled with the Spirit of God in the fullness of time, not even that kind of Christian, is sufficiently equipped to teach himself. We need the apostles' teaching. We must be taught There must be a teaching office in the church of Jesus Christ until the end of the age. Even in this present dispensation, the fullness of time, we must be taught. And the content of the teaching office in the church is the Holy Scriptures. The truth that God has made known to his apostles and, yes, his prophets. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, that we who have been redeemed are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We must always be in touch with that foundation, which is in touch with the foundation, or excuse me, with the cornerstone. Why are they devoted to the apostles' teaching? Well, one important answer is that this is how they cling to Christ. The foundation is touching the cornerstone. These are the apostles Christ chose for them. These are the apostles that Christ has endowed with the office of apostleship, the ones that he has breathed upon, his spirit. For them to cling to Christ, they must cling to Christ's apostles and their doctrine. And so they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They are learning how to live in the new creation, Because the world they have just left behind under the waters of judgment, the world that they were very well educated in and knew its ways, they have to be re-educated for the world they are now living in with the Lord Jesus Christ. And his apostles are their teachers. If we don't want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, if we don't want an ordained teaching office in the church, then we are assuming that we are captains of our own ship instead of passengers. It is really quite hard to overstate how important teaching was in this period of the early church and how important it should remain in this period of the late church. But we can stack up scriptures after scriptures to make this case, how important teaching was in the church. In Acts 4.2, 
we read this description, that the Sadducees were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees were annoyed, the text says, because the apostles were going in and ransacking the condemned kingdom of the devil. And they were ransacking it how? Not just with cool songs, but with teaching. We continue on just briefly. Bear with me. In Acts 4.18, the text says, So they called them, this is the council, they called them, the apostles, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Because teaching was so central. Acts 5, verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. As soon as the apostles are freed from jail, they go right back to teaching. It is the way in which our risen Savior advances his kingdom. We could go on, but I won't go on. They They are devoted to the apostles' teaching And the apostles are teaching because they learned it from the Lord Jesus who came teaching. So, beloved, we need to learn what we are to believe. We need to learn what we are to do in this new creation, that this ark of salvation, the body of Christ, is carrying us to. I like to think sometimes that on the ark, Noah would gather his family and teach, teach the righteousness that they would walk in, in the new creation. May fathers do the same. Now let me say a word about the fellowship, still focusing on verse 42. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and they were devoted to the fellowship. Now, the fellowship may, on the surface, make us think of that deep soul-to-soul and heart-to-heart communion that Christians enjoy, when they are with other Christians, when we are sharing the gospel like medicine, sharing the hopes and the promises of Christ our King with each other over the trials of our lives, that may, on the surface, be what we're thinking when we see this word. But it is quite unlikely that this is the meaning of the word fellowship here in Acts 2.42. Fellowship here is not about spiritual communion, though that is a truth of the church. Here, though, it is about the sharing of property, the sharing of wealth. It is about the eagerness of believers to meet the material needs of other believers. And we know this is the meaning here for fellowship because an almost identical Greek word, in fact, it's just sort of a contracted form of the one used in 242, an almost identical Greek word appears in 244. Koinonia is the word translated fellowship in 42, and koina is translated as common in verse 44. And it's also the same word you find in chapter 4, verse 32, again translated as common. They had all things in common. Now, the word koinonia, the longer form, appears in 2 Corinthians 8, 4, where Paul is praising the churches of Macedonia for their generous giving. Listen to how Paul praises those churches for their generosity and how he uses the word koinonia. 
Now we made known to you, brothers, the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, that with a great ordeal of affliction, the abundance of their joy and the extreme depth of their poverty have overflowed to the wealth of their generosity. I testify that they gave according to their, their ability and beyond their ability by their own choice, requesting of us with much exhortation the favor and the fellowship of the ministry to the saints. Meaning they were grabbing Paul, as it were, by the collar and saying, let us participate. I know you think we don't have any more to give, Paul, but we want to give beyond our ability. We want to participate in the koinonia of the saints, a tangible fellowship of meeting the needs of one another. Now, why would the early church be so devoted to this lifestyle of radical generosity? Well, the answer is twofold. First, the church of Jesus Christ knows upon what cornerstone it exists. Jesus Christ himself had already shown us by his own example how good and blessed it is to give yourself away for others. And Jesus gave himself away, not just his robes, not just his sandals. He gave his very life's blood away. Can a man give any more? The Lord Jesus gave everything. His generosity is our salvation. The very foundation of our salvation is generosity. As long as the church remains fresh in her salvation of a generous Savior, she is going to remain generous towards the body of Christ. The second reason they were devoted to this is that Jesus taught his apostles that when we cling tightly to the things of this life that's buried now, we see, under the waters of divine judgment, when we try to go back and grab all that stuff under the water, when we try to devote ourselves to the accumulation of the things of this world, it just testifies that we are part of the crooked generation. In Luke 12, Jesus told the parable of the rich fool who had a bumper crop. He had an amazing year in the market. And what did he say to himself? He said, hey, I'm going to build bigger barns and store up all of this abundance and tell my soul, soul, be at rest. You are fattened in the prosperity of the earth. And then how did the Lord's parable take a sudden turn of surprise? Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the other reason they are devoted to this fellowship. Because they have now seen with the clarity of eternity that the things of the earth are not worth clinging to. 
They are now ordering their entire lives, this six-verse paragraph says, and it will bring it up again in chapter 4. They are now arranging their entire lives not to be in the pursuit of accumulation of earthly things. Matthew Henry also makes the helpful observation that these Christians who heard Peter at Pentecost, these new Christians, were almost all Jews. And they had already been taught by the apostles that Jerusalem, the city of their property, would very soon be destroyed. And it was. 70 AD, the Romans came and knocked it all down and burned it. They knew that was coming. Beloved, you should know it's coming. A much larger scale final judgment. The things of this earth are not for the accumulation of the church. They are instruments by which we testify to the generosity of our salvation. We are saved by a man who gave everything, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just to briefly say something that might be helpful on these questions, this passage is not teaching some kind of Christian communism. And we can see this more as we get further into the book of Acts, but I just want to touch on it briefly. We know that this is not some kind of enforced legislating communism that is being peeked at here in the early church because of verses like Acts 5.3. In Acts chapter 5, the apostle Peter has to rebuke a man named Ananias who uses the sale of personal property to lie to the Spirit of God and the church, making them think that he's giving more than he's really giving. Peter says to him in Acts 5.3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Did it not remain your own? This proves that this is not some kind of early Christian communism where everybody had to divest themselves of value and property. Ananias, it was your own. And that was when it was right to speak the truth about what you were going to do and not lie. Just a brief word about that. Now, lastly, tonight, I just want to say a word about the breaking of the bread. They were devoted to the breaking of the bread. When we see this language here in Acts 2, we should understand that the breaking of bread is not just an ordinary meal. We know this by reading the rest of Scripture. When our Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he waited to reveal himself until the moment when he was breaking bread with them. And their bread wasn't cut. It was thin and hard, so it was broken. And there was a moment where the Lord broke the bread, and that's when he made himself known to these two disciples, even though he had talked and spoken with them for perhaps more than an hour. But Luke 24:35 describes that moment. When they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The Lord Jesus Christ 
uses bread in that meal to reveal that he is present in grace and love and salvation to his people. And if that was the last we heard of it, we might think, oh, that was just an ordinary meal. But it's not the last we heard of it. The Lord Jesus Christ, later that very day, appears to all the disciples, and he eats a meal with them then. And then we read in the book of Acts, language like this. In Acts chapter 10, verse 39, listen to how the apostle describes the ministry of Christ. Acts 10, 39, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The apostles are putting great emphasis upon eating a meal with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, because a meal shared testifies to peace between both parties. But that is not the only reason the apostles are putting emphasis upon this. They're putting emphasis upon this because the breaking of the bread is a, an idiom for the Lord's Supper. Listen to Acts 20, verse 7. Here is Paul at Troas. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Everything in that verse is stuffed with religious overtones. They met on the first day of the week. That would be Sunday. They met for what purpose? To break bread together and to hear the apostles' teaching. They're still devoted to it. And boy, were they devoted that day. Paul prolonged his speech until midnight. I'm going to only go till 11, so I'm going to not give you the Pauline bonus. Why did they gather? To break bread. Why? Because everything this church, your church, is doing, they are doing to cling to the risen Christ. They're sitting at the apostles' teaching because they want to sit at the feet of Jesus. They are participating in the fellowship of generosity because they want to live in the joy of having somebody been so generous to them in salvation. And why are they breaking bread? Because Christ reveals himself in the supper. Now, this was a love feast. It was a much bigger meal than what we ordinarily do in our Lord's Supper. But it probably, in about a a couple, three years, started to look more like our Lord's Supper, especially after the ordeal in Corinth. Now, they are devoted to the breaking of bread. They're devoted to the Lord's Supper. We already saw that they were devoted to the waters of baptism right at the end of Peter's sermon. Here is the second sacrament. They are devoted to the breaking of the bread because they know that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, is pleased to make himself known to his church through the breaking of bread. And how does he make himself known? Not just to our eyes, 
but to our faith that he is with us as Savior until the end of the age. Everything we've seen in this six-verse paragraph are ways in which the church is staying as close to Jesus as possible, the risen Lord. And this is the good news, is that he wishes to be as close to his people as possible. And so you see here the order that he sets in the rule of his church. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would remember why we have been brought into the church of Jesus Christ, why we have boarded the ark of the body of your Son. Lord, we have come to him for salvation. He has come to us to bestow salvation, salvation from the present evil age, from this crooked generation, from a world under your wrath, from a world devoted to things, the things of the devil. We ourselves were once so devoted. Oh, gracious God, we pray that we would remember who we are, where we are, and why we are there. Grant, Lord, that we would be devoted to the things of the age to come and devoted to them for the right reason. Father, if any among us are dull, dull to the things of the age to come, but so lively to the things of this present evil age, I ask, Father, that you would come and break the rule of Satan over our heart. Break his power over us. Liberate us from his bondage. Let us see according to your word and spirit, that this world is passing away. It shall indeed suffer the fires of your wrath and the things which men adore are held as an abomination by the living God. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us new hearts if we are so enslaved and sanctify all of us, Father, by these words tonight. Set us more clearly upon the joy of the age to come. Help our young people. Lord, we all confess who are above age. We know how difficult it is to look upon the world in our youth and see it as condemned. It is so terribly interesting to us when we're young. Father, we pray that your spirit, your risen son, would do that which is supernatural, for we know our natural condition is to adore the things of earth instead of rightly grieve. Lord, we pray that your spirit, your word, would indeed separate us unto Christ and his kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.